Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report's weekly technology report. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. This new program broadens our weekly coverage aperture. We're still going to be covering cyber, but also the full spectrum of technology, from artificial intelligence to semiconductors, from nanotechnologies to everything else that are critical to national security and economic prosperity. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, how live virtual constructive training is driving capabilities, development, and new operational concepts, and better interconnecting U.S. forces as the Pentagon moves ahead on its top priority effort of joint all-domain command and control. But first, joining us is Dale Swores. He is a partner at the McKinsey Consultancy specializing in technology, innovation, and national security. He is one of the co-authors of a recent report by McKinsey's Aerospace and Defense Semiconductors Practice, Government Chips on the Table, How Higher DoD Microelectronics Funding is Here to Stay. Dale, thanks so very much for joining us. I'm glad uh, you can be on this very first technology report with us. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. Indeed, uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace uh, sponsors our air and naval coverage. And I should point out that Leonardo DRS GE Aerospace and Helicon Chemicals sponsored our coverage of the Air and Space Forces Association's recent Aerospace Warfare Symposium. Our coverage from South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. And our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show uh, Monday through Wednesday today uh, was brought to you by HII, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. Uh, Dale, uh, once again, uh, great to have you on the program. Uh, a great report at a time when the, uh, the United States is making an unprecedented unprecedented investment in uh, new technology, including more than $50 billion in uh, semiconductors. Uh, the Commerce Department obviously is working on a strategic plan uh, that's being shaped by other agencies, among them uh, the Pentagon. Uh, you and your co-authors, uh, Carl Husak, uh, Christian Rodriguez, uh, Roger uh, Vrian, uh, and Eric Tuning, who is now uh, at HII, uh, really worked hard to break down uh, the money and where it's going to be uh, invested. And a lot of people don't fully appreciate exactly the breadth of this, this spending. Walk us through first how this money is going to be uh, deployed. Sure, absolutely. As you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of discussion around investments that are happening in semiconductors and microelectronics more broadly, you know, particularly on the national security side. We, uh, we do our best to actually try to separate the, the, the talk from the actual facts. And the, and the best way to do that is to actually follow the money. Um, there's a couple of different ways that you can slice and dice this. We actually focus mostly on the, the RDT&E dollars. So this is the research development uh, test and evaluation budget, um, both in kind of a base year of 2022 and moving all the way out to 27. And I think the most interesting about here from a top line perspective is that when you look at sort of the, the prior year to the year that uh, the department is investing out of right now, the Department of Defense side, it's actually, it's almost doubled in terms of funding from about uh, 
uh, 1.3-ish billion to, to over 2 billion by uh, uh, sort of this current year. And it's going to stay at this rel relatively elevated level going forward. And again, we're not talking procurement dollars or anything like that. It's really just the money to say, where where are the places where there's sort of actual investment happening uh, from a microelectronics perspective? We can uh, we can talk a little bit more about sort of the the whys and wherefores of those in a second. Um, there are a couple particular areas that are uh, uh, incredibly, I think, elevated likely over sort of a longer term if you look at some of the, the out years and sort of the planned budget spending. And maybe I'll just break down, Bhagav, if it's okay, just a couple of these just so folks understand a little bit of what we're at, what we're talking about. Uh, absolutely. Of, absolutely. That'd be great. If you kind of look at the three top priority areas from an investment perspective, the first is trusted microelectronics, uh, of which there's going to be over a billion dollars in uh, uh, 2023 on the dual use side, about 670 million of that more than half is for this um, sort of trusted microelectronics category. And the idea here is uh, if you think about sort of uh, all the discussion we've been having on secure supply chains over the last couple of years, this is one where there's a very specific sort of need on the semiconductor side. Um, and so through things like the Trusted Foundry Program, uh, and a couple of other specific new initiatives, there is, you know, uh, there's a significant increase in funding that is happening there. This is an area also that there's there also there's also sort of significant sort of commercial um, uh, participation as well on the part of uh, commercial uh, uh, dual use players, which we can talk about in a little bit in a second. The second category is custom assured devices, and so the idea here is that um, there's some things that. Uh, the department can, in effect, kind of pull off of the line for uh, for, uh, for some commercial lines sort of for, for their purposes, but there are others where uh, there are specific defense-oriented applications. So if you think about the classic one around radiation hardening that you need in, in space, uh, this is one where there's not a lot of commercial right. uh, commercial need for this. So um, uh, uh this 900 million, which is the residual, is, is significant that's happening on the actual customer assured devices side uh, for everything from you know, ASICs to other sort of you know, ITAR required categories, you know, a bunch of things around uh, uh, custom radio frequency R&D and things along those lines. And the last one that I think that folks maybe don't pay enough attention to because it's less about the actual foundry elements, the design elements, and otherwise is a, is a significant amount on packaging and integration. So uh, remember the idea here is that you you actually you know, design and manufacture a chip, but ultimately it needs to be plugged into something for a variety of different uses, right? And so uh, um, uh, this is an area, for example, where there's been $380 million specifically devoted to creating you know, onshore ecosystem of dual-use public and private uh, partnerships, which can be used for sort of packaging and integration, among other things. Um, this is notable, I think, across the board, because this is a significantly, as I mentioned, uh, elevated level of investment in a bunch of different R&D priorities for the uh, department, uh, which is a, a reason why we're tracking this so closely. Um, let me uh, ask you about the getting this balance right. I mean, you you mentioned that this investment is is from a, you know sort of a national industrial and economic prosperity standpoint, but it has a very important national security element uh, to this as well, Dale. What's what's the way to get this 
right balance uh, in the ecosystem. Um, because obviously a lot of, um, you know, military systems use very antiquated chips, right? I mean, some, you know, you know, once we updated to Pendium, that was like a big deal. Right. What, you know, what, what's the right way to strike that balance for what it is, it, what we're going to need to develop from a military standpoint and what we need from an economic prosperity standpoint? And Vago, this is one where uh, I know you, you uh, more than others appreciate this. I mean, if we step back a little bit, this is a very back to the future type of conversation, right? I mean, if you think about the development, you know, I live in Silicon Valley and the development as, uh, as a, a, a friend of mine, Chris Miller has written about extensively and very well in his uh, book that was published last year, Chip Wars. Um, the entire semiconductor industry is built on the basis of originally sort of Department of Defense and NASA-led funding, right? So if you think about the, the initial uh, you know, design of the computers for the Apollo program, if you think about all of the right. um, specialized uh, uh, you know, telemetry and microelectronics that were needed for ICBMs, all of that innovation started there. And you could argue a lot of the big end of, the, of Moore's law actually comes out of that set of programs. As, as we all know, that has very much diminished over time in terms of the department leading a lot of demand signal around future R&D spending because, I mean, to be a little bit trite about it, uh, uh, Tim Cook and Apple have a lot more uh, say over the direction of future semiconductor design than the Department of Defense does, given the significant amount of demand that comes from commercial sources you know, uh, uh, mobile phones, IoT devices, advanced computing, autonomy, a lot of these are very commercially oriented applications. And the idea here is that for some things, which is this dual use idea, it's actually totally fine for the department to basically design for things that are commercially oriented applications. But there are others where either there is a specific, you know, security component, there is a specific uh, uh, domain specific architecture that's needed in very, very custom uh, defense applications like, you know, gallium nitride and, and radars and, and a bunch of the things that we're doing on sort of advanced modeling and simulation. You've done a bunch of programs uh, recently on sort of joint, joint all domain and what that's going to mean in terms of the, the actual right. sort of embedded computing that's required. Some of these uh, are going to require very, very, very specific custom Department of Defense uh, related innovations. And we don't necessarily know where any of these are going to come, come from yet. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of articulation around sort of where are the places that likely, you know, uh, uh, are going to be the most fruitful from an R&D perspective. And so, um, you know, this 50-50 that we're talking about now, you know, not opining on a specific number, but the idea that we're laying enough of a glove on making sure that you get things that are appropriately coming from the dual use side, right? But also getting enough that is specific to Department of uh, Defense and military specific applications is probably a balance that makes a lot of sense going forward. If you over-rotate too much on specific custom applications, there may be a question around, is there sort of bang for the buck in there appropriately? Um, and even within that, uh, one of the things that I think um, you know, force planners are doing really well right now is thinking about, again, where are the places where we catalyze and, and piggyback on the back of um, you know, some of these commercial-oriented innovations, which is something you mentioned in the Commerce Department. The Commerce Department has articulated a lot is where are the places where government can actually sort of catalyze larger scale uh, uh, private investments, which from an economic perspective probably makes a lot of sense. 
and, and I'm uh, gonna. Uh, that's gonna be my last question to you: is asking you, you know, what is it we're gonna see from commerce? Because obviously, they do want to get that multiplier effect. That for every, you know, ten percent the government is spending, industry is gonna come up with, you know, an X percent uh, more, uh, which which is kind of back to the future, right? I mean, the very investments the government was making in some of these capabilities paved the way for investors and 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 private capital uh, to get involved as well. One of the things points uh, that you and your team. Uh, made, uh, Dale, was that this investment, right? I mean, the, the question is, you know, how people access this uh, investment, right? Uh, but um, also, you know, how large it is, that this is actually going to be a much uh, larger and more sustained project than just what we're seeing now. Talk to us a little bit really quickly on how folks are going to be able to tap this, because some of it will be dispensed and others you're applying for. And then more broadly, how much are we talking about in terms of the sustained degree amount of investment that we're going to see, which is, you know, which the which was the fundamental point of the thing of your report? There's going to be more money for longer than people think. You mentioned sort of the the, the commerce piece, and this is in the context of the larger Chips and Science Act, which is you know, we we specifically looked at the two billion dollar in this report. We looked at the two billion dollar. Um, uh, Department of Defense sort of R&D uh, spend that's happening going forward. But if you put this in the larger envelope of this $50 billion in spend that's appropriated over the next uh, five years, it is significant. And one of the things to think about there is there's kind of three different tranches in some ways. And I'm blowing this out a little bit because it's partially commerce authorities, it's partially DOD authorities, there's some others that are associated in here. But if you look at that macro scale, um, uh, a large piece of it is for, you know, we haven't talked about sort of the advanced semiconductor, the leading edge piece versus the lagging mature node. And that's a big distinction in some ways that gets a little bit to the trusted supply chain piece where it's more um, uh, uh, mature existing set of technologies, but the department needs a, a set of this in the US versus step where really we're kind of pushing the, the cutting edge. There's about 40 billion plus or minus that is allocated for those two categories, really focused on some of the manufacturing incentives. And then uh, there's this 2 billion on the on the DOD side, plus an additional incremental 10 plus billion that uh, Commerce and, and NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology, is going to have at its disposal to invest over the next five years. Um, a lot of those are candidly, I think, being figured out in terms of the right deployment mechanisms. Um, the, the commerce funding for large-scale um, uh, fabs is actually happening now. There's a notice of funding opportunity out right now. Um, uh, folks in industry can apply for that. Um, from a capital equipment and some of the things that are farther up in the, in the supply chain, uh, I believe there's a second tranche of uh, funding and applications that's going to open a little bit later this spring. And then R&D, a lot of that's going to happen in the fall. Things like the trust microelectronics, uh, micro or that, that, excuse me, the micro... The microelectronics commons, the trusted foundry program, and others, some of these are existing DOD authorities that have actually just been expanded, you know, quite a bit. And so there's a, you know, I believe a rolling, you know, set of uh, funding associated with those and their specific programs in here, they're still getting, getting built up. So right. part of this is things that are available and others uh, uh, stay tuned, I think, to this space as uh as policymakers figure out the right way to inject this into industry, but super exciting dynamic space right now. And uh, do you expect there to be um, a longer term investment plan uh, that goes beyond uh, this window? Uh, my, my crystal ball is not as uh, robust as I think it would need to be to, to see far enough down the horizon for that. But I will say that um, in order for this to be a 
sustained demand signal going forward, you're going to need, probably need to think about pretty enduring, consistent you know, investments here across the board. Uh, there's certainly some things you can do one year or two years at a time in, in terms of you know, innovations in certain product areas, in terms of uh, improving some of the, the process technology workforce and things like that. But to continue pushing this forward, given the, the, the dynamic and enduring innovation cycles here, you know, this is likely one where I, I, would, I would expect to see uh, uh, a, a robust discussion about con continued funding going down the line. And, and let me ask you one last question in about 30 seconds we've got left. Um, what is it we expect to hear from the Commerce Department, right? I mean, there is going to be a big reveal about what the overall plan is. From your sense, are there going to be any surprises or anything interesting we're going to see that's going to come out of that? Um, I, I will be listening right along with you and very, very interested. I mean, to Commerce's credit, they've actually written a bunch about this already. So there have been strategy documents that have come out so far that articulate a few things along the lines that I, that I just articulated uh, in terms of you know, what the specific sort of areas of funding are, this, this leading edge, uh, mature node, R&D associated piece, you know, some of the priorities around making sure that we're thinking around economic development at the same time that you're thinking about some of the national security priorities here. I think commerce is, 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 has been very clear that they're prioritizing um, uh, national security in, it, just as equal as if not higher in some of these areas going forward. Um, and I think there's gonna be very much a question about speed associated with this too, right? I mean, some of these interventions need to have relatively quickly. And what are the things that we can do to actually um, make a difference in the near term versus in the longer term, given this is a very uh, dynamic, competitive environment uh, globally, and certainly some of our uh, uh, peers and near-peer competitors aren't standing still here as well. Dale, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on uh, regularly on this new program. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. We covered the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show uh, this week. And while there, we had an opportunity to attend a panel discussion on live virtual constructive training. After the session, we met with some of its participants to get a granular take on a technology and an approach that's absolutely critical to facilitating a revolution in training by staging large-scale exercises among real units, folks in simulators across the services and including allies up and down the chain of command. Panelists who joined us for our discussion were Skylar Moore, the Chief Technology Officer at US Central Command, Captain Tony Ten, the former commander of Destroyer Squadron 22, Major Joe Silverio, part of the team at the United States Air Force's Air Combat Command that is working on synthetic training and John Bell, the technical director at HII LVC Solutions, which is the leading provider of live virtual constructive training across DOD. Here's our conversation. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Terrific uh, panel discussion. Sky, I want to start with you uh, coming from the chief technology officer's perspective at U.S. Central Command. You made an excellent point about live virtual constructive, what gets connected, what doesn't get connected. From your standpoint, what's that balance line of what you connect and then what, what you can do in a virtual constructive manner and what has to be real training. 
Sure. So I, I think it involves a couple of different uh, factors. So the first is really about risk associated with whatever you are trying to train for. You could be training for a capability, you could be training for a scenario, but is the risk associated something that you cannot take on over and over again at a rate that will give the reps and steps to folks who are training to allow them to do their job more effectively? So measuring risk is really the first piece. The second one is really about accessibility of training. So where are you? Are you on a ship where you don't actually have access to a simulator? Are you on shore and you don't have access to a realistic simulator? What are the scenarios under which you actually can execute what you would be doing in real life. And so again, answering that question is going to be critical to understand whether simulation has a role. And then really the last one is whether or not you can accurately describe what the environment and what the scenario is going to be that you are training against. Because the risk really is about simulating that something that is generally applicable to everyone but specifically useful to no one. And so if you don't have a really like strong and clearly defined understanding of the scenario in which someone is going to be training for, then you may have uh, challenges integrating simulation. So across those three, I think that helps you decide whether or not simulation is the juice worth the squeeze. And, and your point that it's not an exercise that actually becomes a self-licking ice cream cone, that it's a challenging exercise as opposed to something you're doing that manages to tick somebody's box that might not be relevant. I, I think, especially from a combatant command perspective, it's so important to constantly ask the question, who is the user and how are they benefiting from this? If you can't answer those two questions, you really need to take a step back and reassess what you're doing. User connectivity and user feedback in particular is key. This is one of the, especially for training, it's something where you should be actively seeking out what the user experience is on that training and simulator. Did this meet your needs? Did it reflect what your experience was when you went out to the fleet or did it not? How can we change it to make sure that it does? Because the scenario, the environments that they're operating in are not static. They're evolving over time and you need to be integrating that feedback consistently. Um, and one of the operators here is Captain uh, Ten, uh, for, uh, former commander of Deseron 22, where you had five uh, great United States Navy ships, Hayes Gray and underway. If, if some, uh, some of them towards the end were uh, in, in the yard and we got Major Silverio, uh, Payne Silverio, other uh, Silverio or Joe uh, uh, Silverio, uh, also from the United States Air Force, and we're going to get different perspectives, one from an aviator and the other run from a ship driver. From your standpoint, Captain Ten, what are the most important elements of live virtual constructive uh, training, right? Because it's as much about the joint uh, problem, it's as much about a specific problem, and you also talked about staff training as being one of the most important. Walk through all the layers and where is that juice worth the squeeze from your perspective? I think from my perspective is training to that mission, training to that mission set that we're going out to, that we're getting on the ships on their way to, to accomplish. And how do we leverage that training, that realistic training, in order to have, for instance, uh, higher headquarters, the mock, uh, uh, the Maritime Operations Center's uh, battle watch captain involved in the decision-making process. My staff, who ultimately is going to decide, you know, with my direction, is going to decide where to maneuver the, the force, where to maneuver the, uh, the ships in the formation. And then for the individual ships and the individual ships captains to be able to maneuver their individual ships in order to uh, meet the mission. And as realistic as we can make it is, is, is probably uh, uh, what, I, what I'm trying to get to. You know, is that operator in a console, in an Aegis console or an SSDS console, is he gonna be able to see the same things that he would see in the real world when there are, you know, red ships or incoming missiles or incoming torpedoes, what have you. And are we going to be able to train him or her to react and 
and get that to that next level of proficiency where we need him to in order to be, you know, to take the tactical advantage out to sea. Uh, and we have uh, John Bell from uh, Huntington Ingalls Industries. Uh, he is uh, the live virtual constructive uh, solutions uh, guy who's uh, built this platform uh, that both the Navy and the United States Air Force are going to be using. Um, Major, let me bring you in from a combat aviator standpoint. You're with Air Combat Command, uh, as I said in the uh, introduction. Talk to us a little bit. What parts uh, do does the Air Force have to invent on its own, but what are the elements that you're pulling into this? And from a tactical aviator's perspective, right, What's where is this particularly useful? Where are the aircraft flying live? Where are they not? What are the other levels of this, as we heard from uh, Captain 10, that the Air Force hopes to un un unlock the greatest dividends? Right. Uh, so kind of like I mentioned in the panel, the three things that the Air Force is getting after uh, as far as bringing LVC to make live training better, uh, our airspace range size, our adversary, both composition, uh, modernizing, and the density of that, essentially. Uh, the two kind of the three uh, training limitations that we're trying to get after. So airspace, we want to fight uh, at a larger range. With a constructive entity, we can put them wherever we need to and fight at that range. Um, <clears throat> with a limited uh, uh, red uh, force. Uh, we either have to put that up with our blue aircraft or we have some contract red air, but they are limited both in their capabilities and our numbers. So we want to be able to expand that um, to increase the number that's out there uh, as far as the red air goes and then be able to uh, not necessarily trick the systems, but not have the operator play the game of I'm seeing that system because that's um, what it, everything coming off that aircraft is telling me it is. We want the computer, the LVC, the scenario, the environment to actually tell the operator that is an enemy aircraft today and he doesn't have to do that mental math uh, live uh, in the jet. The other piece is both the ground portion and the air portion of that realistic representation meeting the high end, the most modern threat, but as well as meeting the numbers and the density of those. So those are big, the big three uh, limitations we see as far as uh, making live training the most uh, operationally representative. Uh, and you guys are obviously trying to do this in a synthetic environment away from prying eyes because pretty much if you can see it and you can uh, you can see it, you can listen to it and you can figure out what it is uh, from operational concepts that we're doing. John, from your standpoint, you guys are uh, the leaders in this field uh, now, obviously a lot of investment from the, uh, from the company in it. What's the key to interconnecting everything, right? I mean, to an extent, you guys are I don't want to say prototyping a little bit of the elements of joint all domain command and control, but ultimately you're connecting everything from F-35s to F-15s to destroyers uh, and cruisers as, as well as uh, ground forces given, uh, for example, CENTCOM's involvement. What's the trick in order to pull all of this stuff together and make it work as seamlessly as possible? And where's the line between hyper-realism and actually realistic enough because we tend to wrap ourselves around the hyper uh, accurate axle when actually for many training purposes that's not necessary. The real trick is open standards. We specialize here at HII in trying to build enterprise level training architectures and the key there is there are many many different people and organizations that are building training systems. In JADC2 we're trying to integrate all of the services and all of the systems. We need to do the same thing for all the training systems. Otherwise, we won't be able to train JADC2 in our training environment. So open standards, uh, things that the government owns and controls, uh, industry needs to come in and support those open standards. 
we need to collaborate together across services to decide on what those standards need to be, how they need to be extended to support all of the different warfighting concepts and training system capabilities that we need to bring to the table. I think the other thing uh, that you talked about was um, where do we draw the line? So we had a discussion earlier in the panel about uh, you know trading off cost benefit between different types of training systems and training capability and where do we uh, get the money for that. I think it goes back to a comment that Sky made. Uh, we've got to go back to the warfighter in the specific training scenario. We've got to rapidly deploy capability in increments again with those open standards, so that warfighters can evaluate, are we heading in the right direction? Are we getting enough bang for our buck? Where do we need to change direction? Where do we need to make incremental improvements? Where do we need to stop wasting money? I think that's the real key. Um, Sky, let me uh, bring you into uh, the discussion, right, because we're talking from a naval perspective and a combat aviation perspective, but you uh, raise cyberspace, uh, all of these other domains of warfare that are as uh, critical. Sometimes the folks in the, in the Space Force, for example, feel that folks don't recognize how critically important they are. I know that that's an issue also for, for cyber. And then you've got the unmanned dimension of this that's an added uh, complexity. What are the next levels and stages of how we do uh, this kind of training that we need to accommodate, and what are the sorts of things that we actually need to be working, the hard problems on these gaps and seams. The, the Navy and the Air Force know how to work seamlessly, or at least you guys are continue to work on this. Uh, you know, what are the next levels of this we need to be thinking about? Um, I, I think it's important to, to think about training with joint operations in mind so that you are training with an understanding of the data that will be available to you and the other teams that you will have to plug into. So what I mean by that is you can set the bounded scenario for, say, an Intel operator to uh, run through a process that they will be training on. But if it doesn't include certain data streams, whether from space, whether from the cyber domain, whether from another, another domain entirely, um, then you are putting them at a disadvantage if they're not actually training for the joint environment that they realistically are going to be going into. NAVCENT is just one component of the components that we have under CENTCOM, and they all have to play with one another. So really, the, the first step is making sure that you have a clear understanding of exactly the data that you will need to pull in, in order for folks to really embrace and realistically uh, execute on the, the joint environment that we absolutely need everyone to work in. And then really, the, the second piece of that is making sure that systems are, are open architecture. It's been said before, but it really is such a battle that we fight every single day as a combatant command when folks have their different tools, their different trainings, their different processes, um, and increasingly as they all exist in the software space, if that software doesn't talk to one another and if it can't be shared with the right people at the right time, that is a huge problem for us. And so making sure that at all times you are thinking and training in the context of a joint environment, but then also configuring your systems, whether training system or otherwise, to integrate and to quote unquote talk to other systems that will help us all be more successful. Tony, what are the next levels uh, that you need uh, this system and what are the kind of exercises that are going to be necessary uh, for the future looking at this right from a joint all domain perspective? You know, you're basically talking about this from a better fleet training experience. What are the elements that you think you want to bring in and the Navy needs to bring in? And I want to get this uh, also from you, Major, from an Air Force perspective as you guys are broadening that aperture. I think what we need is jointness. We need to, my operators need to be able to work with the Army, with the Air Force, with the Marines, uh, not just within the Navy. I think that we are, we are getting there with the Navy at the moment where from the ship, from their consoles, they can talk to the aviators uh, at their uh, flying their aircraft or 
the aviators at their trainer, their tactical trainer. Uh, but I think that we, ch we need to expand that to include the Army, the Air Force, and the Marines. Major? Showing up to fight is kind of step one. We need to have everything uh, from logistics, contingent logistics, to get everything that we need from our people to the equipment in place and be able to protect them. That's there. I think um, moving beyond just the Department of Defense uh, in a broader perspective to include the rest of the uh, uh, agencies of the United States government to into that uh, LBC community so that we can start from getting where we are to where we need to be to actually make the fight. Um, uh, John, uh, so what are some of the next generation technologies that are going to enable us, right? I mean, one is uh, a resource challenge, right? Uh, the other one is getting all the other agency uh, and partners into this, right? I mean, why not have the Defense Logistics Agency and a number of other folks, for example, be integral to this? Because at the end of the day, right, it's going to be about moving uh, equipment uh, to the other side of the Western Pacific, right? I mean, no, no gas, nobody's going anywhere. Um, ultimately, what are the next generation technologies uh, that you think are going to be vital as not only the size of the virtual environment grows, but then the complexity of each of the systems within that environment uh, grow as well? I think the most key uh, advanced technology there is, is the technology for integrating architecture. Uh, we talked about open systems architecture and how important it is for everybody to be interoperable. But we also have to recognize we've got to create an architecture that enables that. Um, a lot of what we're going to be dealing with in the future in, our, in, our, uh, uh, in the fight is all about uh, communications between combat systems and intelligence systems. And we know that those communications are not going to be something we can take for granted the way, frankly, we do today. So when we talk about training, we've got to build an integrated training environment that's going to be able to support that kind of a problem. So not only do we need to bring advanced technologies to the networks that we're going to use to fight, we've got to bring advanced technologies to the networks that we use to train. Without doing that, we'll be training against the wrong threat and the wrong problem. And, and what are some of the technologies themselves that you think are the most promising is, you know, I mean, folks are looking at, you know, everything from, you know, goggles. I mean, that's only one part of it. Obviously, artificial intelligence that has become sort of in vogue is something that's actually foundational to everything everybody's doing anyway. What do you think some of the most more discrete kind of technologies as you're tracking them as you look five, ten years out, do you think are going to be the most impactful? For training, one of the key technologies that we are going to be looking at that's very impactful is uh, almost a back to the future kind of problem. We need more powerful computers that can run more rapidly. We mean, need more powerful networks that can interconnect those computers. Because in order for us to build models for these high-end training problems, we need high-end computers to run those models in real time. We can't just wait three days to find out what the answer to the problem was. So high-end computing, high-end networking is very important. The other thing that's very important is this whole concept of con continuous integration and continuous development. Uh, DevOps is what it's called sometimes. DOD, it's DevSecOps because everything has to be secure when we do development and operations. And the key there is that we want to be able to adopt some of the industry technology in which capabilities are continuously developed, continuously rolled out transparently to the user. We want our weapon systems to be like that. We want our training systems to be like that. We want to rapidly develop new capability, get into the hands of the users immediately, and then get that feedback so that we can push forward. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mick. I just want to uh, follow up kind of on that, that rapid 
um, network is essentially uh, really what the uh, ACC is kind of going after. Uh, right now we're kind of uh, introducing this idea of a synthetic backbone. So um, that modeling, that connection to back to whatever database is housing all those models that are continuously being updated based on intelligence or however that all that's coming in. But being able to rapidly deploy that not only for training but also into combat so that guys on the leading edge are seeing the most realistic um, Getting their system is most uh, accurate as to what's really, really out there. Um, uh, Sky, let me uh, give you uh, the last question. Uh, you talked about artificial intelligence, right? That uh, there are things it's good at and there are things that humans are still better at uh, at the end of the day. Um, we are looking at better multi-domain operations. The JADC2 uh, is a work in progress. And your command with Digital uh, Falcon and Digital Falcon uh, Oasis, uh, right? One's the command post exercise. The other one is the big multi-domain one. General Grunkevich uh, mentioned that to us when we were at Air Warfare Symposium. Uh, and it's very, very promising. How do you think the live virtual constructive work that's being done here, being enabled, actually helps shape what the future of multi-domain operations and command and control look like? I think it's two parts. I mean, one is the quality of folks that we are receiving out at a combatant command, where if they are better equipped to use the systems that we have out here, all of us benefit from that. It just means that they, they move into operations just more seamlessly, and that is good for everyone. Um, the other way is really pushing training out to the edge, particularly as some of these capabilities are more software-centric and are updating on a higher uh, rate than we might otherwise. The DoD's model is really, it was has traditionally been, a, you get a system and that is what you have for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it just kind of keeps going from there. But now, with software-centric capabilities, you're really updating on almost a monthly basis, um, and that requires that training be pushed out to the edge because the, the, the type of equipment and the type of capability you have is changing really rapidly. So the benefit that we're seeing is, as we think about LVC, as we think about simulated training, as we think about reality-based training, um, the more that you can integrate folks like the combatant commands into that conversation, whether it's about shaping the scenarios that you're training for, whether it's pushing simulators out into theater to give that hands-on training that might not otherwise be available. We all benefit from that, and it helps us execute our mission better. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us today. Absolute great conversation. We could keep it going for uh, another hour, but I know all of you uh, guys have to uh, run off. Thanks so very much.